Christ, and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks to be united in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it well from Romans 15, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek this harmony by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the Book of Concord. Because it's not just some book, but we believe that these writings are in accord with God's holy word. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. We were blessed last week to look at the ecumenical creeds with Pastor uh, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, and it is, is such a joy to realize how we are united with the Church Universal, or the Church Catholic Small C. And today we continue this study of probably the second most commonly known part of the Book of Concord, besides the Small Catechism, the Augsburg Confession. If you were to look at all forms of Lutheranism around the world, they would subscribe in some way to this confession of the Christian faith. So it's good for us not only to study it, but also to confess it, and we join Christians around the world who do so. There's much to unpack, and that's why today as we study the begin the study of the 28 articles, we look at history, politics, scripture, theology, and as I see it, the most important part, the care of souls. So join us on this wild ride. Open up your Book of Concord, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Augsburg Confession, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome the Reverend Dr. Richard Carter, Professor Emeritus of Theology at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Dr. Carter, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you, uh, Pastor, President, Friend Brady. I appreciate this invitation and opportunity. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Dr. Carter, this is our first time together here on Concord Matters. Um, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work in the kingdom? And I, I would say specifically why um, the Augsburg Confession is something you've committed a lot of your uh, your work and ministry towards. So tell us about yourself and more about this work. Uh, permit me with a bit of fun for an introduction. I was born and raised on the mission field. I will frequently use that introduction because people will wonder, oh, what country, what part of the globe? My answer is the San Francisco Peninsula. <laughs> My parents were lay people, faithful lay people. I'm so grateful that they taught me about Jesus. There are a couple of things they forgot to teach me, but they taught me about Jesus. I'm so grateful. They looked around our neighborhood and thought, these children don't go to Sunday school. So they opened a Sunday school in our house. So dating back at this point, uh, close to 80 years, uh, I was born and raised on the mission field, the San Francisco Peninsula. Um, that, the Sunday school that they opened grew to a congregation. The congregation opened a parochial school, kind of two classrooms attached to the parish hall. And in the fifth grade, the first year the school was opened, um, the teacher asked me, one room school, to take the third grader into the kitchen and help her with her math. I have no idea what I did, but when we came out, she knew more than when we went in. I liked that and decided in the fifth grade to become a Lutheran educator. 
Uh, I followed the tradition at that time, graduated from that parochial school, went to the California Concordia High School, Oakland, for four years, and then to what was then Concordia River Forest. Uh, I took an internship year teaching for St. Matthew Lutheran School in New York City and also had youth and music responsibilities. And as I finished the year, I said, I'll go crazy if I try to do all of this the rest of my life. The field, the Ministry of Director of Christian Education had opened up. I was pleased to be certified for that, served a congregation in suburban San Diego and then Appleton, Wisconsin, and then elected seminary in order to do more of that Lutheran educating. I finished seminary and the Lord saw fit to call me to teach in seminary of the Lutheran Church of Nigeria. On adventure, I, well, yeah, to the age of 13, I had hardly crossed a state line. And now the Lord had taken me to West Africa with my family. Indeed, by way of introduction, I thank the Lord that Miriam and I have been married now for 52 years. And we have two adult children and two grandchildren in each of those households. So those kids went with us to Nigeria for six years. The Lord satisfied me and some good conversations with brothers that, yes, I should earn the doctorate so that I could continue that kind of teaching. Um, I graduated with the doctorate on Sunday and went to work on Monday at Concordia University, St. Paul. That was back in 1991. Uh, the Lord blessed me with two opportunities with Miriam to be overseas again when I took sabbaticals. The first sabbatical was for the Ingrian Lutheran Church headquartered just outside of St. Petersburg, Russia. The second sabbatical was for Lutheran Theological School in, it was called Gurukul in Chennai, that is Madras, India. And so the Lord just kept opening doors and giving me a dose of humility. I describe it this way. Oh, the Lord can run the church and the world in ways I never thought of and do just fine. Thank you. I don't mean that things were all sweetness and light in Nigeria or India or Russia. I do mean we were blessed to have that kind of fellowship working with other believers, Lutheran believers, Augsburgian believers in those places. And so then retired from Concordia University in St. Paul, volunteered, and was invited to teach for Concordia Theological Seminary, Hong Kong, for six years. This has put me in an interesting place. I have been ordained for 40 years, and I've been a parish pastor for six months. That is, on the return from Hong Kong, I was invited to serve in a vacancy in southern Minnesota. Uh, just a blessing to see the reality of daily life, the way pastors need to care for people, uh, not only the preaching and teaching, but all day long that people get to hear the good news. Uh, that may be more than you needed to know about me. If there are other questions, that's fine. Otherwise, I'd be happy to talk a bit more about the Augsburg Confession. Wonderful. So I'll say this to you, our guest. This is a real honor for me because when I went to college, I went to Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota, not a Missouri Synod school. And so one summer I decided, you know what? I have some money. I'm going to take a class, Lutheran Confessional Heritage class at Concordia St. Paul. And there I had 
the Reverend Dr. Richard Carter was my professor for, I think it was only three weeks. I mean, it wasn't very long. Did you remember? Those, those classes weren't very long, maybe three weeks or was it two weeks even? What was um, it? Do you remember? I agree with the question. I do not remember. I do remember <laughs> enjoying this guy coming up for the summer from Gustavus. It was good That's to right. have you there. It was wonderful. So I, I, I am very thankful um, for his teaching, uh, his prayers, and the continual reconnections that the Lord has given us. And so so let's get to this. Um, two weird listeners, once again, we are studying from the Concordia, Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions, the reader's edition to the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. This is the second edition, um, and we are on page 21 as we begin our study of the Augsburg Confession. And just a reminder, this is not part of the Book of Concord. It is simply an editor's introduction to the Augsburg Confession. Now, Dr. Carter, you have um, looked and studied and proclaimed and confessed the truth of the Augsburg Confession for many years. Why? Let's just start this way. Why is the Augsburg Confession so important? I, I wish you could see the smile on my face. Yes, the delight to be able to talk about the Augsburg Confession. Uh, it strikes me even I could say that our study starts on page 20. Uh, this wood carving from Durer about the wise men adoring Christ. Uh, that's what's going on in the Augsburg Confession. This is attention to Christ so that his good news can be heard. Uh, in the one way, you can see the pattern uh, as they set the Book of Concord. You looked last week at the ecumenical creeds. Yes. So when the Augsburg Confession starts out, it says we're dealing with the kinds of things that the ecumenical creeds, Nicene Creed in particular, were teaching. Wow. So to teach the Augsburg Confession is to be teaching what the church has been about since our Lord died and rose again for us. Just a neat kind of opportunity. Even you see that in the layout, Article 1 is about God, and then 2 is about sin. 3, we get to Jesus, so that 4, we get to justification by grace. We get to that incredible good news. How important that was, permit me to push farther into the Book of Concord, how important that good news was becomes clear in the next document in the Book of Concord, in, which is the apology or the defense of the Augsburg Confession. In the Augsburg Confession, this is a thrilling clarity, just a few short sentences about Jesus Christ dying for us. That's our good news. In that next document, the same article number four is 400 paragraphs long so that you can see just doing the statistics how important this good news was that people could hear what Jesus Christ had done for us. Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merit, or works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith. Um, the privilege and the opportunity to have been teaching that uh, in some sense already as a director of Christian education, but then in particular since starting in, in Nigeria to require students to dig into that document and say, oh yeah, that's how it plays out. Because then uh, Article 5, to obtain such faith, God gives ministry. It's not just we have a ministry, but God designed ministry so that we could obtain that faith. And by the way, Article 6, that faith launches you into new obedience, into sanctification. Mm -hmm. So the, the privilege and the opportunity 
to require students to work through and recognize the depth of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel. Uh, is that enough of a campaign speech for yes? I'm really grateful for the Augsburg Confession, the opportunities I've had to teach that. It's all about gospel. And this is why for you, our guests, that as we study, well, the Book of Concord in general, but especially the Augsburg Confession, that it is so important to remember um, that reality, that the the filter, if you will, as I talked about when I was on Thy Strong Word here in KFUO, put on your Christ goggles, that when you read the history, read about the people, read all of that, all of it, their goal and 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 the way that the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, has given us these documents is for the sake of the gospel, the forgiveness, life, and salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we're recording right now, it is just after Easter. So, hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen He's indeed. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Carter, I'm ready to start digging in. Are you ready? Yes, go for it. <clears throat> All right. We are on page 21, like I mentioned, in the uh, uh, Reader's Edition. And we'll read the first two paragraphs to, get, to really wet our palate to all of this. Like, what is the history? So we begin. On Saturday, June 25th, 1530, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Dr. Christian Beyer stood, walked toward the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, and began reading the Augsburg Confession in a loud and distinct voice. Through the open windows, a hushed crowd outside in the courtyard hung on his every word, as he did the 200 or so people gathered in the hall. Beside Dr. Beyer stood the Dr. Gregory Bruick, holding a copy of the Augsburg Confession in Latin. The German princes around them stood up to indicate their support for the confession. The emperor motioned for them to sit down. When Dr. Beyer finished reading, Dr. Bruick took the German copy of the confession from him, handed both copies to the emperor and said, Most gracious emperor, this is a confession that will even prevail against the gates of hell with the grace and help of God. Thus was the Augsburg Confession presented as a unique confession of the truth of God's holy word, distinct from Romanism on the one hand and Reformed Anabaptists and Radicals on the other. June 25th, 1530 is a date every bit as important for Lutherans as the more familiar date of October 31st in 1517, the day on which Luther posted his 95 Thesis. Now, Dr. Carter, you, you've, you've mentioned your trips. You've gone to southern Germany. You've gone to Augsburg. You've seen many of these things. Um, tell, us, tell us more about you know, the, some of the history and to, to help us understand even more about what's going on. I, I am distracted a moment, as I mentioned to you, by, yes, Southern Germany. Um, I appreciated the opportunity for two weeks last summer to be in Wittenberg doing English language ministry. Uh, that was a wonderful gift. The tourist office 25 years ago asked an LCMS pastor if he could arrange a schedule of Lutheran pastors to do English ministry in Wittenberg. 25 years, every two weeks, there's a new Lutheran pastor in town. So I was there for that. My wife arranged chance to visit the relatives in Western Germany, and then we went south. So I'm holding in front of me what we just put together, a puzzle of this Neuschwanstein castle way down in southern Germany. 
So a couple of descriptions of that. It's about two hours by drive south of Augsburg. Some of you may have seen those pictures. It's just this lovely castle sitting up in the mountains. A delight. It was on the border with Austria. And that already brings me closer to the Augsburg Confession because this Charles V that you read about was emperor for Austria and for what we would call Hungary and down into Spain and Southern Italy and just all kinds of emperors. So it was lovely chance to step into the history and to remember some of the politics of that time. And then I want to tell you, if I may, a short story of my embarrassment, which takes me back to the importance of doing this work. Um, my wife and I decided we were not going to spend the time and the energy and the money to get into this beautiful castle itself. But the tourist information said, oh, here's a walk up the hill that will give you a beautiful view. OK, so we're on the walk. And in my absolutely competent German, I said, this walk is called Klavierenweg, which would be keyboard way. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting name. You say it's the Klavierenweg, the keyboard way. Okay, we'll keep walking. Oh, that's a nice picture of Jesus. Oh, that's a nice picture of Jesus. We get to the top of this mountain with this beautiful overlook of that castle. And there are three crosses. It was not the Klavierenweg, the keyboard way. It was the Calvarienweg. This was walking in Christ's steps, as those various pictures and crosses along the way said. And that strikes me as part of the challenge and opportunity as we get into the history to say, oh, wait a minute, the history is important, but let's not get lost in it. I very much appreciate that last line. June 25th, 1530. Yes, we're grateful for Luther nailing the 95 Theses, but here was a public proclamation. In a sense, the government department of religion for the followers of Luther in their governments, making this public statement to the emperor. That's the end of my first campaign speech. Do you want more now, or do you want to read a little more before I pick up? I would talk well, let's about read a, cities a bit later, Torgau and yeah. Schwabach. And let's read a little bit more, because this is, I mean, it's very simplistic, but it is so vital, as you said, filter through the gospel. But the individuals and what led to this, there's a reason why they were confessing this at that time and that, that, at that place. And I love it that you're talking about this castle, that it was always about the cross. So let's, let's keep that in mind as we go to the events leading to the Augsburg Confession. The presentation of the Augsburg Confession was a decisive moment, once one long in coming. It is important to understand the history leading up to the imperial meeting in Augsburg. Nine years earlier, on April 18th, 1521, at the imperial meeting in Worms, Worms Charles had listened as Martin Luther refused to recant his teaching, saying, I cannot and will not recant. I, can do, do, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. Now, Charles was watching as the most important rulers in his German territories confessed their faith openly and courageously in spite of the threats to their lives from both the government and the church. Martin Luther had been declared a criminal and a heretic. He was excommunicated and sentenced to death on April, 20, April of 1521. 
1526, the Reformation had spread to the point that during an imperial meeting at Spire, the Lutheran princes forced through a resolution that gave each of them the right to arrange religious matters in their respective territories in any way he, he felt was best until the emperor was able to have the Pope call a general council of the church. So from 1526 to 1529, little changed in the Holy Roman Empire. As a result, most of northern Germany became Lutheran, along with many cities in southern Germany. At the Second Imperial Meeting at Spire, 1529, the princes loyal to Rome reversed the decision and made three years earlier. The princes loyal to the Lutheran Reformation and the other reforming movements fiercely protested this decision. They issued a formal protestio. Thus, the Lutherans, along with other reformers, were labeled Protestants. The name has stuck ever since. Charles ordered all rulers within the empire to go to Augsburg to attend the imperial meeting. He wanted to settle once and for all the controversies in the churches throughout his Germany. The armies of the Turkish Empire were literally at the eastern gates of Charles' empire. He wanted unity so that the Turkish threat could be met. He hoped that a combination of kindness, cajoling, and finally threats would stop the Lutheran movement and restore Romanism throughout the empire. But things did not go as Charles had hoped. Pastor, uh, break this down for us. I can tell you're having a good time on the other end of this mic. Yes, I, I, things did not go as Charles had hoped. Um, let me start at this point with a bit of description of Charles I. I mean this politely and respectfully. He was a government ruler. We're talking about Vienna. Um, that is Charles I, while he's emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the German nation. That's another title. Um, is a Habsburg uh, of a great family with roots in Austria, also roots in southern Italy. And he was, in fact, at this time, king of Spain. He had been elected among the candidates to be the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. So he's got all these pieces to fit together. Um, I was trying to think of how to describe it. When we want to talk about emperor, I've usually heard it as it was not holy, it was not Roman, and it was not really an empire. This German contingency, the geography might be what we're used to now, approximately the borders of Germany. But for me, I would describe it as, an at that point, a nation of about 300 counties. And all the confusion and sometimes strife and struggles among those counties. So while he's king of Spain and southern Italy and, and something of Austria, he's trying to figure out how to get these 300 counties to get along together, and especially to get along together religiously. He does himself seem to have been a faithful believer and follower of Rome. He did try to get the Pope to call a general church council, and some of his later decisions will show, yes, he was a faithful follower of whatever it is that Rome would teach. But if you can imagine this juggling act or whatever you wanted for Charles V, uh, his Vienna is under siege. And he wants to unite these 300 German counties so that they will help him with the siege against his favorite Vienna. He's got that political reality. 
And he knows there's a religious strife, a religious argument going on here. Is that a place to start from in looking in particular at Charles and the larger European context at the time? You know, there's so much to unpack here, Dr. Carter. And it, it, to me, it's very, very important for you, our listeners, to to understand, and I'm continually learning more about this, is that politics are were just part of everything. The government, like you, you talked about the, uh, um, the what do you call it, the, the religious arm of the government? What do you call it? The, yeah, the, a, depart- um, a department of religion. We have a department, department of state. We have a department of commerce. Uh, yeah. As is common in some governments, also now in our day, the emperor had a department of religion, and each of these counties had its own small department of religion, maybe a few university professors helping out. A department of religion as a part of the government. And this is so important for us to understand because it's so different than our own culture today. So, Dr. Carter, with about a minute left before our break, do you want to you speak about... Why, why, what makes that, I don't know how to say it, how, what makes that unique as we read this story, what, read the story the, 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 about the Augsburg Confession, that the government was so involved and why, uh, well, God worked through that. Any, any first thoughts? Because that doesn't hit our ears normally. About a minute left before our break. Uh, I appreciate that recognition that, I mean, for us, at least listeners in the United States, we are so used to a separation of church and state. Well, God demonstrates his capacity to work through whatever governmental structures you may have. That's what's going on here. Uh, The emperor says to the heads of these 300 counties, you show up and explain yourselves. Okay, we will do that. We will officially show up to the emperor and give our confession of faith. Uh, God can do wonderful things with government systems we're not used to. Well, we need to take our break right now. Uh, we are beginning our study of the Augsburg Confession, and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple. And faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are beginning our study, the editor's introduction of the Augsburg Confession with the Reverend Dr. Richard Carter, Professor Emeritus of Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Dr. Carter, we are, uh, there's so much that we could highlight because it breaks down from the the, the parts that we remember uh, in the Reformation celebrations. For example, the, the, the 95 Thesis, 1517. We hear of the imperial meeting in Worms on April 18th, 1521. You have all these other, you know, governmental back and forths and Lutheran princes versus this versus that. They they give a formal protestio, which means why we're called Protestants even to this day. And then we get to um, some more important events with the articles that we're about to read. But is there anything else you want to break down for us as we look at the history leading up to the Augsburg Confession? Um, I've got notes on a number of cities. I will wait until you have mentioned those cities from the readings. 
Um, I just want to pick up where I was before the break, this sense of, oh, wow, look how God can move through any system to get his word confessed. Now, it's a bit of a tragedy um, that we've needed reformations. Uh, we have tragedies down in the church today where we get political or personal squabbles. Uh, but this confession and this, this historic moment in June 25th, 1530, while wow, look what God can do to get the good news heard, even under a government that's resisting it and trying to restrict it. Well, let's get to the next portion, which is a part that I would say we typically don't think of when we think of the Reformation, the Schwabach, the Marburg, and Torgau articles. So hold on tight. Here we go. The next portion. Uh, we'll read uh, these these paragraphs. I'm I'm sorry if I could just interrupt for a moment. The the, the humor of that the the who articles the what? Um, <laughs> I appreciated that in Concord Matters. You've been atta paying attention to this small catechism that's mm -hmm. that designed in the first place for the home. How we can learn the faith simply to get to words like Schwabach, Marburg, and Torgau certainly complicates life. But it's worth listening. Please go ahead. Thank you very much. Here we go. Lutheranism was only tolerated where it could not be eliminated by military force. Lutherans had no protection in German territories that were loyal to Rome. After the 1529 Diet of Spire, Philip of Hesse sought to create political federation for the mutual defense of those who had protested the autocratic action of Charles V. Philip of Hesse and Jacob Sturm united Sa Saxony and Hesse with certain southern Germany evangelical cities. The coalition was created on 1520, uh, April 22, 1529, in a secret agreement at Spire. To clear the way for possible inclusion of the Swiss and the Federation, Philip of Hesse planned to settle the dispute between Luther and Ulrich Zwingli at a meeting in Philip's castle at Marburg. The Lutherans were concerned by Philip of Hesse's desire mm -hmm. to put political unity ahead of doctrinal unity. After the Diet of Spire, Philip Melanchthon, who had kept silent regarding the differences between the German Lutherans and the Swiss, had a change of heart and tried to thwart the Federation. Luther also opposed the Federation without confessional unity. The Schwabach Articles were prepared by Luther and others sometime between July 25th and September 14th of that year. The Marburg Colloquy took place on October 2nd through the 4th, 1529. Aldrich Zwingli and Martin Luther had faced each other across the table for most of the meeting. The two groups identified much of what they agreed about, yet the talks broke down. The disagreement had to do with the Lord's Supper. Zwingli was willing to settle for an agreement to disagree approach, but Luther insisted that the words, this is my body, means this is my body. In fact, he took a cup, a piece of chalk and wrote the words, this is my body on the table itself. Whenever Zwingli or the other Swiss reformers tried to disagree with Luther about the reality of these words, Luther would lift up the tablecloth and point to the words. The Marburg Articles therefore indicate we are not agreed as to whether the true body and blood of Christ are bodily present in the bread and wine. The Marburg Articles, along with the Schwabach Articles, provided a firm foundation for the writing of the Augsburg Confession. The 17th Schwabach Articles were first presented on October 16, 1529. They insisted on unity of doctrine as a prerequisite for any cooperation among the various Protestant groups in Germany. So, Dr. Carter, we have 
we have the Schwabach articles. We got the Marburg quality, uh, colloquy, which points us to the Marburg articles. How do you want to break this down? I can start geographically. I did have to check Schwabach again this morning down by Nuremberg. So we're in southern Germany. And then Marburg is up a bit in western Germany. That is to say, this was not just a professor in Wittenberg, south of Berlin, uh, not just a professor in Wittenberg making some trouble, but no, in fact, lots of these 300 counties in the empire were engaged in this conversation. And it was clear on the one hand that lives were at risk, hence that secret meeting in 1529, when the public meeting of 1529 in the city of Spire had reversed the 1526 meeting in Spire, these guys kind of could look at each other and say, uh, how do we defend ourselves? Because this part of our doctrine is so important. Let me pause to acknowledge here then, so when we're protesting and when we have such divisions just in the Protestant churches, uh, we even have a larger division in what we can call the Eastern Catholic or Orthodox churches and the Western ones. The sadness of all of those divisions, what are the things for which we must stand even at the risk of our lives? And that's what these fellows, the theologians in particular, departments of religion, were working on. First of all, at Schwabach, and then coming to, more, to Marburg. Um, yeah, the, the struggle and the opportunity and the challenge there meeting. And it strikes me, by the way, they did not fly. They did not drive. Maybe somebody took an ox cart. But to get to these various meetings was pretty much called walking. Can we appreciate just their physical faithfulness? We get these two conferences at which these guys have to say, for what are really are we willing to stand before the emperor at the risk of our lives? That's my first response to thinking of Schwabach and Marburg, other parts of Germany. The purpose is, what's our confession of faith at the risk of our lives? Well, and that's something for us to understand that there was a, that it seems like they're kind of quibbling at times. I mean, we can get to that point where we look at it and go, ah, it's kind of quibbling. You're just writing more documents and then arguing over it. And, and what's the purpose? Like, why are you doing this? But like you said, if we see this as simply theologians arguing over something like angels on top of a, a head of a needle or, uh, you know, pins and needles or something, then yeah, that, that was not uh, worth the time. But here it's very clear, even as we read this, um, these editor introductions, that they were really concerned about the gospel, that if this is not Christ's body and blood, then what am I really receiving? You know, that has to do with the gospel, the questions of the care of the people that he was that uh, were the souls receiving this sacrament. And so you could clearly see there's politics involved. There's a lot of personalities involved, um, a lot of history involved, war, everything else, government uh, entities but yet they very clearly are quibbling over what is the gospel and how can we make sure the gospel gets to the people, um, you, pastors. If, and, if and we others. were on video, you would see me nodding my head. And <laughs> uh, a story comes to mind that I experienced at this point, it was about 20 years ago. 
a very faithful pastor was talking about some pastoral work and saying, it's so important that the pastor does it. Okay, uh, tell me, not like this is going to be out on the table at Marburg. It's so important that the pastor does that. Okay, tell me why. Why is that so important that it's the pastor who does that work? And the third time around, this is the answer that came. Because I really want the people to know that they are forgiven. And so on the one hand, this had seemed like simply a, a debate or this guy's frustrating point about master's got to do this. And then as I asked him to unpack and as he kind of listened to himself, he realized, well, it's so important because of the gospel. I'm making this point because I want people to hear the good news. So, yes, that's what they were after. And I would encourage you, you our listeners, is to look into these articles. Uh, they're, they're something I've re-looked at over the last few years. That there, uh, These articles are available in different places. I know Fortress Press um, came out with the, the Book of Concord, the Kolb Wangert edition, with an additional, the, the, the Torgar articles and, and the Marburg Qualiqui and all these. Are, they're very important because they really are the, the before the Augsburg Confession. So all these documents really led us up to the point of having the Augsburg Confession. So obviously you have some time instead of watching a Netflix show, maybe you want to, you know, pull out the old Torgar articles. I mean, and tell your friends. How about that? I like that. <laughs> So, so let's continue here, Pastor, as our time uh, is moving quickly. Page 23, I want to read the rest of um, when it speaks about these articles. Uh, the first pair, full paragraph on page 23. Charles V persisted with his efforts to eliminate the religious controversies in his territories. He was facing pressure from the threat of a Turkish invasion from the east. He was also mindful that the Pope might at any time strike an alliance with the ruler of France and attack his empire from the west. The empire was a coalition of relatively independent territories and free cities. The key rulers of the empire were known as electors, for they actually elected the emperor. Charles depended on them both militarily and politically. He could not afford to alienate them. Charles was very devout and felt strongly that it was his duty to protect the Roman church from the threat posed by the Lutherans and other Protestant reformers. He hoped that the meeting at Augsburg would settle all disputes. The Elector of Saxony, John the Steadfast, at first refused to attend the meeting in Augsburg, but Charles urged him to do so, since Charles invited everyone attending to share their opinions, thoughts, and notions. Elector John asked the Wittenberg theologians, led by Martin Luther, to prepare a statement of confession. Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Justice Jonas, and John Bugenhagen met in Torgau and went to work immediately. Their document was given to the Elector John to Elector John at the Torgal Castle in March of 1530, and is therefore known as the Torgal Articles. So, once again, there was a meeting before the meeting, right? This is a gathering before the gathering. Yep. Torgal and Schwabach and all this. What do you want to? What do you want to highlight in this? Well, the first thing, yes, the meeting before the meeting before the meeting. Uh, that's how seriously they took it. Again, when you're dealing with the emperor, even though you've elected him, now that you've elected him, he is the emperor, and so you are at a certain kind of risk. And so you need to respond when the emperor tells you to show up, as the elector of Saxony, among others, one of those 300 counties, had to do. He acknowledged that he had to pay attention. Um, 
I, I am grateful to have been in the Torgau Castle. Uh, roughly speaking, if you're going from Berlin to Leipzig in western Eastern Germany, you will get in the neighborhood of the castle. But for me, its great feature is it was the location for this conference is one of the first, the chapel in the castle was one of the first church buildings that was used for services according to the new proclamation of the gospel. So I get all kinds of pieces caught up in here and appreciate very much how hard these guys were willing to work cheerfully on their words while they were in the castle, getting ready to respond to the emperor. Well, and, and it also, just a reminder that it wasn't like Luther was sitting there and he just wrote everything. And everyone's like, okay, all right, what are your ha- whatever you have to say. That you have, um, for example, John Bugenhagen, who's just a great, I mean, I would, I would encourage you to look at his history and his confession of faith. And let alone Philip Melanchthon, which in our, uh, in our reader's edition, it has a little bit of a, 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 a biography of Melanchthon. And Melanchthon, as we continue through Augsburg to the Apology and, and beyond, you might, you might have a little bit of a tainted view of Philip Melanchthon. So let me read this biography that's written here. Philip Melanchthon was asked by the elector to write a comprehensive statement of faith. He did so without, without close consultation with Luther, but he relied heavily on the Schwabach, Marburg, and Torgau articles, each of which were very much a product of Martin Luther. Luther indicated he approved of Melanchthon's work, though he pointed out that he would never have been able to tread as lightly as Melanchthon did. Luther now, could manage to be a cantankerous <laughs> fellow. Yes, Philip was much more of the peacemaker. Absolutely. So, so Pastor, we, uh, Dr. Carter, as we look at all of this, anything, anything else you want to highlight before we actually get to the event of the Augsburg Confession? Um, probably my gratitude... Um, that these guys were willing to work that hard. Indeed, in a sense, I am their descendant and their heir. It was my responsibility in teaching to be very thoughtful and attentive to what I was teaching. And if there were concerns to bring them, let's say, to the theology department at Concordia um, or to pastoral conferences, uh, I'm so grateful that they did the hard work then so that these careful descriptions that they worked on can become ours. And I appreciate the recognition that on the one hand, this is Luther, but on the other hand, this is a whole bunch of fellows working at it. When we get to Augsburg, Luther isn't even there because of that meeting at Worms. His life is at risk. He can't get out of his own county safely. And so to recognize that we are not simply Lutherans, no, we are the inheritors of the gifts of these several people who did very hard work including Philip Melanchthon. Well, let's continue on page 24. It says the gathering at Augsburg. On April 4th, Elector John left Torgau with Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, Justice Jonas, and Diet Viet Dietrich, a secretary to Luther. Ten days later on Good Friday, they arrived at Coburg Castle. Luther and the Elector remained at Coburg while the others traveled on to Augsburg. There, Philip Melanchthon was given the responsibility of leading the Lutheran theologians. However, the elector had set up a special courier service to make sure letters between Luther and his colleagues would be sent to receive, be received quickly. Elector John arrived in Augsburg on May 2nd. 
The meeting began with a clear signal that the courageous Lutheran laymen were not about to concede to the emperor's demands, nor compromise their convictions. As Charles' royal procession approached Augsburg, it was met by a large delegation from the city, including the Lutheran princes. The Pope's ambassador stood to give the whole assembly a special blessing from the Pope. When the crowd knelt, Elector John and his fellow Lutheran princes refused to kneel. Charles and those with them made their way into the city and arrived at the cathedral, where a special mass was held. The crowd noticed that, again, Elector John and Philip of Hesse refused to kneel and remain standing with their heads covered during the blessing. Later that evening, Charles and his brother Ferdinand, the king of Austria, met privately with the Lutheran princes. They ordered them to forbid any Lutheran preaching in Augsburg during the meeting. They commanded them to attend the Corpus Christi festival the next day with the emperor. George Margrave of Brandenburg spoke boldly for the Lutherans. He refused to concede to Charles' demand, saying, Before I let anyone take me from the word of God and ask me to deny my God, I will kneel and let them strike off my head. The emperor, clearly taken aback by George's boldness, sputtered in broken German, Not cut off head, dear prince, not cut off head. <laughs> so this is, I mean, all of this, if we just read the Augsburg Confession, you don't realize how these guys, well, literally stuck out their neck for the sake of this of this confession of faith. And, and when you read the Augsburg Confession, I just want to remind our listeners, too, that it's very clear they were not denying the historical and tradition traditional practices as long as they were in accord with God's word. So even reading this, you realize they were not doing anything anti-scriptural. They were making sure that people knew the distinction of this is what God's word said versus what tradition has said that's not in line with God's word. So I, they just, like I said, literally stuck their neck out for this. Pastor, your thoughts? Um, I appreciate what you're looking at there. The Augsburg Confession itself contained 28 articles, and Melanchthon followed the same pattern in his defense uh, maybe a year later. 21 of those were affirmations of the age-old Christian teachings. And then the seven last articles were about practices of the church. That was the distinction they made. They were concerned that these practices conflict with these teachings. And that's what they were going to work on. I'm, I'm struck at the same time by, permit me the humor of it, not cut off head, dear prince, not cut off head, sputtered in broken German. Uh, the emperor didn't particularly know German. Uh, he was he was king of Spain. He could handle that language, but this German language, he'd been elected to be its emperor. Uh, there were the language issues here. Uh, and and I appreciate at the same time then this confession is going public uh, as it's about to come. Um, yeah, that that German people get to hear God's word in their language. Uh, that that part of the celebrating. But yeah, I'm back to gratitude that these men were faithful at the obvious risk of their lives to make sure that the traditional, the, the teachings of the church from the earliest centuries were still honored with a focus on God's good work in Christ. Well, and you look at it, and, and there's so much, <laughs> there's so much to this that here he comes in, there's the normal processions. I mean, this was a pretty hyped up time. You know, they didn't, they didn't read this 
over a potluck where everyone's just kind of having a good time or like Easter breakfast that we'll have in the church or something. I mean, there's, there's a lot of tension that is involved. That was not simply just reading a book. This was, this was very much so a tense time um, in the East, in the West, from Rome, from everybody. Do you you have any thoughts on that? Because really, you really unpack that well, that there was a lot of moving parts before we get to our last section here. Your last thoughts on the surroundings. Uh, Just that that you're quite correct. Again, in a structure, we would not be used to a department of religion, theologians borrowed from the universities to write this material, but as an, an official statement, Uh, It's not a way that we're used to doing things and God could still work so hard to give these men the courage to stand for their gospel. Well, let's get to the last uh, portion of this introduction, which is on page 25. We have about eight minutes left in our time, so we continue. The writing, writing the Augsburg Confession. The plan to present the Torgar articles had to be scrapped when it was found out that a lengthy, slanderous attack on Luther had been prepared by John Eck, Luther's old nemesis. At Leipzig in 1519, it was Eck who tried to brand Luther as a heretic. Now he had secretly written a lengthy attack on Luther and had followers in a book titled 404 Articles for the Diet for the Diet in Augsburg. It included quotations from Martin Luther's writings, as well as from other Protestant reformers. The book was highly inaccurate and tried to equate Lutherans with the teachings of Alderic Zwingli and the, most, the, and the most radical of all reformers, known as the Anabaptist. Eck's goal, was, Eck's goal was to identify Lutheranism with the most extreme reformers, some of whom denied the most basic doctrines of historic Christianity. In light of this development, the Lutherans were forced to prepare a new statement of faith and specifically distance themselves from Zwinglians, Anabaptists, and others. The Augsburg Confession was intentionally crafted to present a gentle and peaceful response to the emperor. This is Melanchthon at work, gentle and peaceful. There it is. It was intended to only speak for Saxony. However, as various German leaders read it, they indicated that they too wanted to sign their names and make it their confession. So on June 25th, 1530, courageous Lutherans, Lutheran laymen confessed their faith and told the emperor and the Roman church what they believed, taught and confessed. They relied on the promise of God's word as contained in Psalm 119, verse 46. I will speak also of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. The Augsburg Confession was presented as a statement of biblical truth and a proposal for true unity in the Christian faith. It was never, it has never been withdrawn. The translation is from 1518 Latin edition of the Book of Concord, which was the base text for the Augsburg Confession and the Concordia Triglata. See the user's guide, da 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 so this writing, I mean, we could have easily been, it could have been the Torgal article, or the Torgal Confession, but because of John Eck, um, it became the Augsburg Confession. Uh, what, do you, what do you want to highlight? We have about six minutes left in our time. Uh, first, I, I like that distinction. I had not quite recognized it that way before. You're entirely correct. Thank you, John Eck, that you pushed so that in a polite sense, Melanchthon was gentle, in a polite sense, they had to push back and say, no, wait a minute, this is what we're really focusing on. And again, the, the, the light for me is on the one hand, it's the fourth article of the Augsburg Confession, which comes down to just a few lines that talks about that justification by grace through Christ for Christ's sake, freely given to us. 
that it expands a year later when, when Melanchthon needs to write a defense or a response about the confession. It's so clear that that's where they're going, this historic faith focused on God's word in Christ. Uh, yeah, just kind of fun. Couldn't be the Torgau articles. It needed to be the Augsburg Confession. Crafted, not careless, but crafted. And I, it, it is interesting to me how they're, you know, they're looking at Psalm 119. I will speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. This, once again, hits our ears just differently because we just don't function in a way like that in our country. And I, and in some ways, maybe we should, but I, you know, it's very interesting of how they were able to connect it that way. They were able to not only look at that, but was the Roman church speaking. And it, it is very full because the Augsburg confession is very much so something that relates to us today. So, so uh, Dr. Carter, uh, how does, as we look at all of these happenings, how does that relate to us today? If if you can touch on that or other other th such things that you want to highlight before our time. Um, I suppose I'll start in the 21st century. That is, I'm holding in my hands that Polish edition of the Augsburg Confession and the reminder that it's not Luther to whom we give our adherence, but your small catechism and his large catechism and this confession that goes around the world and grateful to the various publishing societies that help with that. Um, but another response, the opportunity last summer again to have been in Germany, I, I do not brag about that. I mean, I thank God for that chance again to have been in Augsburg. You can find the marker indicating the building, the hall in which the chancellor read the confession. It is indeed fun to imagine the community in the balcony and standing around outside listening as it's read in German along which then they did hand to the emperor the official Latin copy with it. But alongside that space with that building, there's a cathedral that is still in use. It would have been used for worship services at the time of the diet, at the time of that meeting. One of those places where the electors stood at the risk of their lives. It strikes me that that building also helps us to demonstrate some of the confessor's concern for good works. Inside that cathedral, there are so many altars and religious paintings, so many places where it had been the assumption at all of these altars, you can do all of the good works will get you closer to heaven. And they needed to stand against that and to say, no, there's one good work up there at the central altar, God doing his good work. So while I am sad to see the fractures of the church, indeed the fracture of the church had happened already 500 years earlier, east and west, I am sorry to see the fractures of the church today. I am so grateful that when you come outside the cathedral, you find the archaeological re remains from a church building of the second or third century. Mm -hmm. So it calls us back to the earliest times of the church to God's hard work across all the centuries, this excavation that says, oh yeah, believers across the centuries struggling to be faithful to this gospel. That for me is part of the gift of Augsburg that then shows up in 1530 in the Augsburg Confession. Dr. Carter, minute left in our time. How would you 
highlight our talk today about the Augsburg Confession and encourage our listeners in Christ? Um, two things come to mind, uh, contrasts. One, oh, that was a lot of hard and risky works. Not all of it risky, considerable chunks of it hard. That's kind of like our life today. Oh, that hard and risky work was for the sake of our hearing and being able to share what God has done in Jesus, so freely demonstrating his forgiveness and caring for us. So, yeah, hard work then and now, that gospel then and now. The Reverend Dr. Richard Carter, Professor Emeritus of Theology at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota, giving us a great start to our study of the Augsburg Confession. Dr. Carter, thank you for your teaching on Concord Matters. Thank you for the invitation. God's blessings as you continue. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the fall.